Hello and welcome to the maiden episode of a lawyer and a policy analyst walking to a bar. I'm Delano D'Souza, the policy analyst. And I'm Jadrick Cummings, the lawyer. This is going to be a weekly podcast where we're going to basically be immersing ourselves in discussions about Caribbean issues and Caribbean uh, occurrences. And now we've decided to bring this podcast to you because we realize that there is a need for it in terms of the discussion, not just in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, but regionally, particularly by you. And we wanted to take the time to sit with you and really give you our thoughts on different issues. Yeah, not only from the social and political landscape that's going on in the region, but touching on and concerning issues, vital and things that we deem important to youth, to integration in the region, touching on themes of law, policy, economics. Why should you listen to us? I mean, who are we? I am a policy analyst by trade. I have a bachelor's in economics and management, a master's in banking and finance, and I've just submitted uh, and await the defense of my PhD in economic development policy. And so I feel like this would be a platform that I can really share some of the knowledge and experiences that I have with you and kind of, you know, put my own spin on different issues from around the Caribbean. And, well, I have a bachelor's in law. I am a practicing barrister and solicitor for the past five and five and a half years. I'm also in the notary public. And uh, it really is the opportunity to team up with Delano so that we can provide you, the listeners, with our perspectives from a legal standpoint, from a policy standpoint, and really get engrossed in a discussion that's worthwhile and meaningful for everyone in the Caribbean, especially our youth. Uh, for us, we realize that the, the, the level of discourse among our youth, especially in St. Vincent, is, in, in, at least in my opinion, uh, lacking about critical issues, about issues that are affecting our future. Uh, and I can speak particularly about politics, about um, the economy, about the state of our economy, joblessness. So, you know, those are the type of issues that we want to raise the bar in terms of discourse. And we want to put this out here because we want it to be something not too far. Um, just touching on, uh, about the youth, as we mentioned, it's of particular concern, the male underachievement in our youth. It's something that we really need to try to uplift in our community. And, um, you know, maybe with our podcast, with our discussion with about these issues, we can really shed some light on that as well. In terms of the format of the podcast, we're going to keep it very simple. Each episode, we're going to choose a few topics, uh, domestic and regional, and we're going to dissect them in the following way. Uh, what is the issue? Why is it an issue? And what are some of the possible solutions to the problem? And we're going to do all of this while having a, a drink at one of our favorite bars. So pull up a stool and join us. For the first episode, for this meeting episode, uh, we want to tackle uh, St. Vincent's bid for a seat on the UN, for a non-permanent seat on the UN Security Council as our uh, domestic or local issue for this episode. And we also hope later on to speak about the recent CCJ referenda in Antigua and Barbuda and, and um, Grenada and as well as the implications for us here in St. Vincent. So we want to move on to speak about those. Now, in terms of the UN bid for, uh, for St. Vincent's UN bid for non-permanent seat on the Security Council, uh, the facts are, uh, are these. The election for the Security Council will be held in June 2019, and that would be for a term uh, to serve from 2020 to 2021. Now, Trinidad and Tobago, Jamaica and Guyana are the only CARICOM countries to have previously sat on the Security Council. And if St. Vincent were to succeed, it would be one of the smallest nations to ever 
have done so. This discussion kind of started with the appointment, um, Jarek, if you remember, with the mm-hmm. appointment of uh, some colleagues of ours, uh, you know, young professionals um, working hard. Um, they were appointed uh, to the roles of um, foreign officers at our UN mission in New York City. And um, these, these particular uh, individuals uh, were family to ULP administration. And that sort of became a talking point. I don't know if you remember, Jarek. Yeah, it's something that that did become a bit topical in St. Vincent just because of the whole nepotism side of it. But um, as Delana said, they are colleagues of ours. Um, we do consider them very competent and capable. But that's the whole reason that this became you know, a talking point in St. Vincent and the Grandees, just because of that whole nepotism factor. But it is something that we're going to discuss the whole bid for the UN for a non-permanent seat on the UN Security Council yeah and then this debate also it expanded to include uh, the value of St. Vincent and the Grenadines being uh, elected to a seat on the UN Security Council what exactly are the benefits of this and then um, as a result of this there started to be criticism of the ULP administration and, and, and the Prime Minister and his vision uh, for us to be uh, included uh, for, for that seat. Now, in October 2018, just recently, uh, opposition Senator K. Bacchus Baptiste called for an audit on a reorganization of um, St. Vincent's uh, foreign missions and she raised questions, particularly about the, the amount of money that we're spending and the opportunity cost, uh, the development um, deficits that we have here in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, and kind of question, Jarek, she kind of question, should we really be spending this type of money? On, on this on this bid um, as you know it was six persons that 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 were added to the mission there was a promotion the ambassador so clearly that comes at a cost I think the what our listeners want to find out and what really underpins the entire thing would be what are the overall benefits of a nation having a position on this the UN Security Council I mean something that I myself am not too familiar with like Obviously, it's the the council itself is of great import to the the world, you know, um, just because of their whole mission um, in peacekeeping around the globe and so forth. And it's something that every nation tries to tries to be on. They try to have a seat on that council. But um, what are the what what are the direct but what benefits? are the benefits? And, that's, and that's I think thing. that's what yeah. that's what the the opposition and the, and the opponents of of this bid are asking. I mean, we we drive around St. Vincent, we all see the state of the road. We right. all see that the, their infrastructure is lacking. We we had recent shutdowns of, of governments run schools because yeah. of, of of disrepair and so on. So you know, and that has really sparked a discussion as to why are we doing this? Why are we spending? And that's a, that, and that's under the, these opponents assume that this is costing us a fair penny. Now, in response, um, I'm, I'm sure you would have seen Jared, that um, Prime Minister Gonzalez responded um, recently, I think at a press conference, and he spoke to the fact that the expenditure as a percentage of recurrent expenditure is basically uh, at the same level that it was in 2001 when his government took office. Right. Now, that's, that's particularly interesting, as he also mentioned that it was about one point, uh, I, I believe he said it was about um, 1.64% in 2001, and it's around the same now. Right. And so then the question then becomes, at least for me, from the perspective of, of, of a policy analyst, somebody who looks at numbers, using percentages can sometimes be misleading. 
Because if you're saying it's basically the same percentage of recurrent expenditure. But we all know that recurrent expenditure has grown yeah, largely since since two thousand one. So although although you're saying it's basically the same percentage, that that could well represent uh, you know a, a significant amount of money in yeah. constant in constant dollars, right? You know, so that that is one of the areas of concerns there in terms of the whole bid. So the question then is for our listeners at least, you know. Do you think, Jadrick, that the, the concerns of the opponents in terms of the opportunity cost uh, for the country, do you think that those, those allegations, those, those, uh, they, that they are well-founded? Well, you see, because of that cost, I mean, we don't, do we have a figure of that cost that is costing the country? The, the total cost of emissions in 2018 is about $9.43 million um, annually. Right. Uh, but that, of course, includes all the missions um, that that we have in New York, in Toronto, etc. Right. So it's, it's not a it's not a cause as to exactly how much we're spending on the UN. Because right. he in, in the press conference he didn't give a, a, a breakdown. Okay, as that, that was just a global figure. Yes, that was how much we're spending okay. on our missions. Right. I know recently as well. I think you know um, the Prime Minister of Canada Trudeau. He was saying that it was costing about ten million Canadian to to bid for that seat. Obviously, our figure is much less given that. Our prime minister says about 9.43, you know, as a global figure. But the concern that everybody else has is what about developing St. Vincent? What about the direct impact? They want to see that direct benefit, as Delano said, to the roads, to the infrastructure, to, you know, um, our school, the development of, of sports, education, that kind of thing. It's tough when people don't see that direct benefit, yeah, that I direct mean, link, that, you know? That, yeah. yeah, so I mean, it's all well and good that, yes, okay, we are bidding for this position to be on the UN Security Council but the direct short-term benefit at least they can't see and they want to know why why not spend the money elsewhere why not make better use of um, of our capital you know so that's a concern I think that's the main contention of everybody else of the opposition of all those concerned all those who have an opinion on the issue is the fact that they can't see that that, that direct benefit so I need to remind our listeners that this this podcast is, is intended to be apolitical in the sense that we are not affiliated with any political party in the uh, definitely not, Grenadines, yeah. not in the region Correct. so you know this is just us chatting you know we're, we're not the mouthpiece for any political organization at all the views expressed in this podcast are entirely our own <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah we know we're just throwing it out there throwing it yeah. out from both sides mm-hmm. and um just for your benefit just so you could get it from both angles and you can leave the podcast with a greater appreciation of all the issues usually when i make posts like these on social media i always use the hashtag politics aside because i believe it's important and i feel that that's a concern in st vincent in general that we we, we can't separate politics from issues and that is not the intention of this podcast so we just want to be clear in that regard but i was making the point in terms of to be fair to the, the prime minister and to be fair to the ulp administration the prime minister has made the point that this this bid for this un seat was in his 2010 and 2015 political manifesto right so it is not that i mean his argument is it's not just being sprung upon the nation this is something that was in a policy document of his government and they were elected both times and it's basically been a 10-year right. uh, leading up to this bid. So, you know, so I, I think from, from some perspective, it's, it's unfair to say that it's something that's come out of the blue. 
right, which yeah. is what some of the opponents are saying. Because it, really, it's been in the document if we bother yeah. to read if it. If we bother to read it, that's the thing. Because you see, there are more pressing issues when it comes to campaigning and election time. And you know, you know, other things grab the media headlines, the attention. But if you bother to read it, and you would see that that was a part of his manifesto from you know a long time ago. So it's just that now, as we said, you know, these issues of nepotism and so have come up that parties concerned. You know want to make it an issue and they're i guess giving it um a hard time when looking at the benefits of actually making a bid to go on the security council so then the question then becomes at least to my mind is the opposition and i can suggest is the opposition playing politics with what is a straightforward issue i ask this question in the context of you know there at least in my mind some of the benefits are clear it's a prestigious thing you get to sit on one of the most although sometimes it doesn't have as, as much uh it's sometimes it can, it's known for only bark and no bite in terms right. of the, the un comes in, in in terms of its peacekeeping mission but at the end of the day it remains a prestigious thing and we want this we would be the smallest nation or one of the smallest nations to ever hold the seat and so there are obvious benefits in terms of reputation yeah, and in terms yeah. of the stature of St. Vincent and Grenadines internationally. Uh, you yeah. know, we'll be mentioned X, Y, it can help our tourism, you know, the, the country is becoming known, it helps our, go, our, our good governance boostings, etc, etc. Yeah. So it has those benefits, but like you mentioned before, Jarek, the, the tangible ones, and you know how people stop in, 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 in St. Vincent, we know people stop in the region. We want to yeah. see tangible things. We want to see tangible Don't tell me not my reputation. And that's the thing, I mean, as Delano said, there are only, I mean, less than a handful, actually, of countries in the region that have actually been on the council. Not even Barbados. You know, I think it's just um, Trinidad, Jamaica, um, Guyana. Well, Guyana. No, um, in terms yeah. of CARICOM, that's In terms of CARICOM. Um, I think other than that, it's Cuba and... Um, yeah, um, there are Chile and a couple other yeah, countries but, that have been on it. For us to be on it, I mean, the, the benefits, even though we can't see them as the landscape, those tangible benefits that we like to grab onto and we like to parade around, even though we can't see those immediately, the the benefits are there. I, I mean, I think it's good for the for the country. I'm glad the Prime Minister took the time to, to kind of put things in perspective financially in terms of the cost. In the long term, and I think that's one of the problems that we have, not just in Sindhins, in the region, and even sometimes internationally, even developed countries have the same issues. We kind of have this myopia, the short-term vision, where we feel like if you know it has to be now. But what about investing in the country's long-term reputation, you know, that can help us now, even in terms of more development aid, more partnership with, with other countries, yeah. wanting to come in and, and, you know, foreign investment and so on. Obviously, I can't speak for the Prime Minister uh, or his administration, but I feel that that's kind of the, the anger that they're looking for in terms of this bid. You know what I mean? But it's, it's one thing, this is another thing when people driving on these bad roads, it's another thing when, when people sure. seeing, yeah. seeing these things. So, yeah. and I think they had a, a poll, I, I think I remember listening to Hot 97, and I think they had a, a non-scientific poll, of course, basically right, yeah. asking uh, for votes. Would you rather better roads or would you rather UN security vote? And of course, <laughs> the Vincent, you know, I, I can see that over a bear. You know, yeah, I can I mean, see that, but you know, when you make it so black and white, <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the decision is easy. Yeah, so the overwhelming people were saying that you know, th this is what they want to, to go for, and that's one hot topic that's been dominating on um, the local <laughs> airwaves. The other one, just last week, and, and I had the privilege of being uh, a panelist on a podcast over the weekend. Uh, for a brilliant colleague of mine from Trinidad and Tobago, Aurelia Bruce, discussing the CCJ referendum. I'm going to pull some of those points because it wasn't just me, it was um, a group of my colleagues from, from the UWI Cable campus 
practicing attorneys in Grenada, Antigua, uh, and, and Barbados, etc. And it was really a good regional discussion. So I right. hope she forgives me if I pull some of the points <laughs> from that podcast, as I don't think it's a, it has aired yet. <laughs> but it really surrounded the, the CCJ, uh, in particular, the, the, the referenda in Antigua and Barbuda and um, Grenada last week. What are your initial thoughts on those referendums? It's only fitting you as my, 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 my lawyer for years <laughs> and my friend for years kind of break down for the people exactly what is a, a referendum. Because I know we take it for granted and this is one thing that came out in the discussion in the podcast, Jarek, is mm-hmm. we take it for granted that people know what is a referendum as opposed to a, an election. Right, yeah. And, you know, the, the difficulty. So, just, you know, walk us through that. Tell us about the referendum, what exactly it is, and why some why do some of these countries require mm. a referendum and others don't? Right. Now, you see, the, as Delano rightly said, the CCJ has been a hot topic. You know, for some time now, since its inception, really, because of the fact that some jurisdictions have signed on, others have not. Only four. <laughs> right? Exactly, <laughs> only four. You know, that's Barbados, Belize, Guyana, Guyana and Dominica. Dominica was the most recent one. The thing is, our final appellate court has been the Privy Council, and that is based in London. So that has been one of the main contentions of adopting the CCJ, the fact that they're so far removed, you know, how can they adjudicate our matters? How are they au fait with our culture? Our judges are in a better position to do that. Why not sign on to the CCJ? The the question that Delano wrote there is that, you know, why do some countries require referendum and others do not. Now, I'm not a constitutional lawyer by any means, but basically there are certain entrenched provisions in our constitutions which you can alter, right? And uh, there are certain provisions which provide for the alteration of those uh, provisions in the constitution. In St. Vincent, for example, well, let's start with St. Lucia. In St. Lucia, the Attorney General sought a reference from the Court of Appeal, right? And that was based on an interpretation of, I think, Section 41 of their Constitution, or 41, Subsection 7. And that basically dealt with whether or not a two-third majority was required, or a referendum was required, in order to, to move away from the Privy Council. And the Court of Appeal decided that that section, that the, there was an exception provision, mm-hmm. I think it's um, 41.6. And that exception provision provided that the provision that dealt with appeals to the Privy Council could be amended or could be altered by a two-thirds majority of the House. Okay. Right? And uh, what the question was that went to the Court of Appeal, what they had to decide was whether or not, in fact, that exception provision was in relation to I think section 107 of St. Lucia's constitution or 108. Okay. <laughs> no, right? Now 107 dealt with appeals to the High Court, where there's by virtue of an agreement with the UK. Whereas 108 um, deals with appeals to the Privy Council. Okay. So they wanted the Court of Appeal to decide whether or not there was a drafting error in the Constitution, in that the two-thirds majority should have been in reference to section 108 is dealing with the Privy Council. Mm-hmm and not um, appeals to the Court of Appeal, which is what it said, 107. Mm-hmm. And the Court of Appeal came back and said, yes, there was a drafting error and that um, it should have been 108 instead of 107 that he typed. I mean, the long and short of it is that the, the reference, it allowed for the two-third majority to amend the constitution in relation to appeals to the Privy Council. And other constitutions followed, uh, are similar. 
um, okay. St. Vincent's is similar. So there was not so there weren't there was not actual interpretation of St. Vincent's Constitution. No. Okay, so it was St. Lucia, and then we've taken because I I know recently I know recently the Prime Minister when for the ceremony and setting up the CCJ mm -hmm. uh, for the appointment of of the new Vincent and Chief Justice. Uh, mm -hmm. spoke about um, his willingness based on uh, 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 the interpretation that uh, he would be willing, his government would be willing to uh, to, to, to basically pass uh, the, the legislation required to move from the Privy Council to the CCJ if the opposition because the interpretation uh, I, I think that the government appears to be going with now is that it only requires a two-thirds majority of the House which is Parliament here right. and so he was saying that they would be willing to do so in the case of St. Vincent. Uh, obviously that has then um, spiraled into another type of debate by the opposition and the opponents in general about um, different issues as to whether or not St. Vincent, even if we are, are able to do it without a referendum, should we even do it? Right. So, but I mean, before we jump into that though, I just wanted to go back on um, last week's referendum in Antigua. And I note one thing, Jadrick, uh, importantly, and. I don't think based on even from the podcast we had this weekend that I mentioned before we are of the, the opinion that sometimes our people it's almost like we can't separate we don't know what the difference between a referendum and, a, and, a, and an election because you know we can see that that it kind of the process becomes politicized uh, it becomes partisan politics and it becomes divisive and so on and we saw that uh, to a lesser extent in these two countries because the, the government started to kind of meet on a middle ground with the opposition parties before putting the referendum to a vote. In the case of Grenada, this is the second time yeah, that they, time. they have done a referendum on, on um, the CCJ. But bear in mind that the first time, as you know, the first time was um, a multi-issue referendum, right. yeah. which kind of had, a, I think, four or five a suite of different things. Right. And then this time around, it was a one-issue referendum, whereby there was just one question, yeah. similar in Antigua. It's isolated to the yeah, CCJ. Just yeah. the CCJ. And then, um, in the case of St. Vincent, you know, we had a basically a whole new constitution in 2009, which was rejected. Yeah, you know? I, think, I think that was a mistake. But, I mean, it's seen that from the referendum, it probably wouldn't have mattered i don't know mm -hmm. it, you know the trend is that they're rejecting mm -hmm. the the ccg so i you know and just from going to different um town hall meetings and so forth um i went to one recently where the president of the ccg he spoke and you know he was a feature speaker as well as a notable attorney from barbados and uh, still issues crop up whether support of the opposition or not there there are these I, I don't know even know what you call them. They're not based in logic, really. Mm -hmm. They're, they're, they're <laughs> just these, these... Almost like you're clutching at straws in yeah. terms of you're looking for a way to remain. They're just and these notions that I just cannot reconcile with any logic. logic. Yeah. And I mean, in the case of Antigua, and like I mentioned, I, I mentioned it before because the turnout was really low. The turnout was low, yeah. The turnout was low. I think in Antigua, there was a turnout of around 33.4%. Um, and in um, Grenada, it was around 28% of the, the, the electorate that actually voted. Mm -hmm. Now that's a major fall off from what they had, because bear in mind that both of these countries recently had general elections in which the government were elected overwhelmingly. In mm -hmm. Grenada, you know, there was a clean sweep and in Antigua, I think maybe one or, it was only a few seats that, that were captured by the opposition. So these governments went into this referendum, you know, with their tails wagging basically, yeah. 
they felt that you know we have the political support right now but it didn't translate into mm-hmm. vote but could that have been an issue as well the fact that there was just recently an election well, you know mm-hmm. could you say that the population was tired they didn't mm-hmm. want to go out again and vote they just recently did you know okay uh-huh. i elected a government why do i need to go out and vote for a, you know judiciary you know what yeah, does this mean to me like you know that's a fair point i, I think it's a it's a, a point that some jurists have been making and some academics have been making that you know, the, the general man you know he doesn't really concern himself with the you know the goings-on of the court system um yes i mean a lot of people are involved in the court system some people are involved in matters and litigation all the time others they see themselves as removed from that like oh you know courting had nothing to do with me i don't need to put you know i don't need to give an input um i think because when you discuss it with academics and you know lawyers and so forth you know they decide i mean they have decided that yes the ccj moving to the ccj is the correct approach but you know the the common man i don't think he is so concerned or he is so inclined to to really this to really think mm-hmm. about the value of going to the ccj and moving from the privy council to him he probably doesn't even know what the privy council is you know so that's why all these other things crop up in their discussion about oh you know the current judicial system judicial system is not good why are we going to this and that and that you know but that, that's a that's a good point, Jared, because even from, and again, earlier, forgive me, but yeah. even in the last podcast, uh, oh, my Grenadian panelist, uh, Rosanna, from, from uh, a practicing attorney in Grenada, was saying that um, the campaign was almost tone deaf in the sense that they were having so many challenges with the local court. The high court didn't have a home. The high court wasn't sitting in Grenada. You know, they didn't have somewhere to sit. The, the, the lawyers were complaining. You know, the court, there's a backlog because the court yeah. can't sit and so on. And there you are with all these problems with the court. You're pushing the, the, the CCJ on the right. people and at a time where, where regular justice, so to speak, isn't even being dispensed. And, you know, that was one of the concerns of um, Grenada. And I mean, I mean that's how it is here as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't have seats for lawyers at the courthouse, that kind of thing. I mean, our courthouse is, I mean, it's a beautiful building, the, the old building. But I mean, you know, wooden floors are falling in, that kind of thing. And yeah, it's yeah, okay I think it's well. high time for you. <laughs> you, you know. But I mean, you have to remember and you have to bear in mind that we have the Privy Council now and all these things exist. Yeah. So, I mean, you can't say, oh, moving away from the Privy Council would mean that our local judicial system would get worse or you know we need to deal with that first we have the privy council now and the judicial system is the way it is so we might as well move to the ccj where the court can actually have some influence i mean the ccj visits these jurisdictions i mean they can dialogue with the lower courts and that's something that the privy council would not do so i mean it's something to bear in mind that you know this the privy council exists and the state of affairs are the way they are i want to touch on something now that you mentioned that Janet. i want to touch on this perceived um, notion of um political interference mm-hmm. and i say this in the context of, like i recently read an article i think on the daily mirror uh, one of the uk um online newspapers uh, i'm not sure if they print as well but it was basically praising the ccj and the setup of the ccj um it was a, a review of um international courts globally and they, they were praising the setup of the CCJ in terms of the appointment of the judges, in terms of you know the jurisprudence, etc., etc. And they were basically saying this is a model. 
that yeah. perhaps other courts internationally could be following. And you know, the the, 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 the setup is such that uh, in terms of the, the, the funding of the court, in terms of the, the selection of the judges, etc., is very insulated from the political system. Yeah. But yet we have all these allegations and I can speak um, even locally, although I think that is tainted by other cases that are ongoing right. um, with respect to the election petitions and so right. on. And, and you know, other historical cases where where the judiciary has, has been seen uh, to interfere right. locally. But what can you say about that? How do you feel about that in terms of them saying that there is a, a, a chance for interference? Um, I don't agree. I don't agree. Um, obviously, you can say because with the CCJ, the setup of the CCJ is such that there is a, a body that's far removed from any political influence, the Judicial Service and Legal Commission. And they're responsible for um, pretty much picking the judges, right? And it goes through a very, they go through a very rigorous um, screening process, you know, background checks and all these things. There, there's no political interference. Um, you know, you, when you consider other jurisdictions like the U.S., where the president pretty much Hand nominates, picks. yeah, he, you know, nominates the Supreme picks, Court judge. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you pick someone, you go through the Senate, but I mean, you know, whoever owns the Senate yeah. at the time, whoever majority. You well, know. when you consider that, that's that's how the CCJ is set up, and that that committee picks the um, the judges, and uh, and it's advertised globally, yeah. It's not just to Caribbean jurists. They advertise. Yeah, because we know that based on the fact that you think we have somebody from the Netherlands, right? You know, um, and we have somebody British. Witt, yeah, we mm-hmm. have some. We have, and, we have and, a Briton and, and Hayton, yeah, Justice Hayton as well. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's something that's advertised globally, so judges from all around the world can apply, and um, you know they would go through that same screening process, and they're selected by the committee. And um, another thing that people fail to to realize is that. For all intents and purposes, our final court right now is the Court of Appeal. Yeah, because I mean, the percentage is lower than the number of cases that go. Yeah, because you just the barriers to going to the Privy Council, to filing an appeal to go to the Privy Council, are just so high that your final court now is the Court of Appeal. Mm-hmm. And all these judges are Caribbean judges in any event. So if you're seeing there's, there's political interference or a chance of political interference at the CCJ level, then the chance of political interference at the court of appeal must be higher and that is in essence our final court because we just can't afford to go to the Privy yeah, Council. I mean even bringing it back to us locally I remember Sir James former Prime Minister spoke I think he spent in excess of a million dollars yeah, to, he did say that, to, yeah. to, go, mm-hmm. to go to the Privy Council I think that was in relation to the Atni Hall inquiry he's still a staunch advocate to the Privy Council yeah. but I mean he himself had to admit that he spent over a million dollars to get there yeah, and then yeah. recently I think um, um a senior counsel, I think Anthony Asafan in mm. I think in, in a recent column program in Antigua say I think he was saying and though if I if I'm misquoting I, I think our, our listeners can forgive me but I think he was quoting something like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to take a to take a case to the Privy Council. So I mean, you know, that's so and, it, we can see it's a, it's yeah. an astronomical amount of money. You see, I, I I mean I can speak from experience. Like um my firm My firm was it's one of the few firms that actually did a civil case um, to the Privy Council from St. Vincent and the Grenadines. And I can tell you just well, we prepared the notice of appeal and you know the preliminary documentation to get to the Privy Council. And then UK solicitors take it over from there in terms of correspondence oh, wow. and fight just filing stuff mm-hmm, in court. Mm-hmm. But you know, that's what they do. And they charged 20 something thousand pounds right that's i mean 
Wow. Yeah, that's, that's what, 60 something thousand easy? Yeah, that's. And that's just for doing that. If you hire UK barristers on top of that, because remember in the UK, solicitors and barristers that's are that's separate. separate. Mm-hmm. You hire UK barristers on top of that, they might charge another 20,000 pounds. That's 40,000 pounds total. I mean, which Vincentian or which person in the Caribbean is gonna, which layman can, can, can afford, afford that? that? I mean, yeah. it's only the wealthy that really have the opportunity to access the Privy Council um, as opposed to the CCJ where I think there is a, a scheme for um, a, pretty much a, a, an assistance mm-hmm. where it might cost, I, I, they, they, they waive a significant amount mm-hmm. of the fees. It's even flying to the UK, mm-hmm. you know, it's $4,000 a ticket. Yeah, I mean, you know? and I just wonder, in terms of that as well, the, the, the swiftness of the dispensation of justice. Oh yeah. And I can I can think about um, Professor Ventus's case against the Electoral Commission in Barbados that occurred yeah, that, that in a matter of days. Yeah, that was a record-breaking, a record-breaking um, thing, and, <laughs> yeah. and allowed him to vote. And, yeah. and for the Vincentians and for the people who don't follow these regional cases of the CCJ, in terms of their jurisprudence, that was basically a case where uh, St. Lucian was fighting for the right to vote in the recent Barbados election and he took it all the way to the CCJ and won. And I said that to say as well last week Friday, I don't know if you caught it, but there was also a judgment down, handed down by the CCJ in the Jason yeah, Jones with the, case um, uh, against the, the LEC, law school, yeah. yeah, against the law schools mm-hmm. in the region and so on. But I mean, just going back in terms of the political interference and, and, and the chances that if we look at the, the, the history of the CCJ, they, they they have ruled against Barbados twice as a nation. We all know about the Shanik Mary case. We all know about the, the Eddie Ventos case, where yeah. the government of Barbados has basically been told that you know the, the, the rulings have gone against them. Yeah. You know, and you know people are saying uh, talking about influence and so on. And even in Belize, I think there's some con- there were some cases as well too. And I think one of the justices is the brother. Uh, it's related to the the prime, yeah, the pri- the prime yeah. minister of. So uh, of um, Belize, Belize, sorry, yeah. of Belize. So when you look at those kind of things, but yet we're still seeing fair and some yeah. judgments coming out of the CCJ. So and you know, you see that that's something that um, Justice Saunders often raises. It's it's one issue that he often starts his discussions um, with the fact that the CCJ is not an idea. It's there. It mm-hmm. exists. It's implemented. It's in Barbados and um, Guyana since 2005, mm-hmm. right? In, a, in addition to that, Jarek, I don't think that the people in general know what the work of the CCJ in terms of improving access to justice at the, at the domestic level. You can think about the Justice, I think the Justice Project and I think the Impact Project, where yeah. they're really they're going out there and helping to build up um, the capabilities oh, yeah. of our lower courts and so. Something that obviously the Privy Congress isn't doing. Yeah, we're not doing, yeah. You know, and the, the CCJ continues to, to try to make these strides in terms of developing yeah. our code yeah. system. And then just bringing it back on, on the local side, Derek. Because, I mean, my bear getting, my bear getting warm, <laughs> you know. So just bringing it back on the local side. Do you think that we in St. Vincent, and, and I say this now in the context, I, I, I read it and I think I shared it with you. A piece um, written by Minister of Finance, currently oh, um, Camilo Gonzalez. Uh, where he basically spoke about a, another avenue uh, in, 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 in the absence of successful referenda, in the absence of, uh, of, a, chorus, uh, of a, um, a convincing argument in favour of, of, of a parliamentary pa- of parliament passing a bill that, that maybe we, should, we as a country should take the approach similar to what we did for independence in terms of lobbying with the UK to, um, to no longer hear 
hear the cases of the Caribbean and therefore kind of nullify um, that, that provision in the Constitution that requires us to go to the Privy Council. Thereafter, we could then seek to alter the laws, you know, basically make the switch to the, to the CCJ. I thought that was interesting. Um, what do you yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's something that coming from these town hall meetings and discussions and, you know, just, just discussions with my colleagues in general, it's something that I have always, I've often joked about. I've often said, you know what? The Privy Council just needs to slam the door in our faces and give us no choice. You know? <laughs> just, just kick us out. Like, just end all the debate about whether a referendum is needed, whether we need a two-thirds majority, etc, etc. Just slam the door in our faces, kick us out. Because, um, you know, the some law lords in the UK, in the Privy Council, have said it's time that, you know, we switch to another Apex Court. You know, they, they, they want us to leave. You yeah, know, but we just exactly. are unwilling. Yeah, you know, we've spoken about costs and yeah, you know, what's costing them to hear yeah. how their judges hear our cases. Exactly, and so on uh, and so pretty well. They won't say it in as yeah. much words, but you know, it's pretty much a waste of their judicial yeah. time. You know, yeah. they could be hearing their own matters. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think it's it is interesting. It's something that I. I have, as I said, I've joked about, but it's in a very serious way that, you know, the Privy Council just needs to say, hey, you know, forget about y'all, handle your own affairs, and that way just end all the discussion, end all the talk, and, uh, you know, nobody will have anything to say. Yeah. I mean, I'm just now kind of wrapping up the discussion about the CCG and wrapping up this episode, the first episode, and one of the things that we didn't get to discuss really is the public education campaign and the sensitization that went on in um, neighboring Antigua and um, Grenada, Grenada mm. leading up to the, the referenda uh, in those countries. Now, I think that's something that's desperately needed in St. Vincent. You know, even even in the absence of a, of a, of a referendum, I still think we need to embrace public education, particularly yeah. about the CCJ. Whichever method we get to the CCJ, or whichever method we attempt to get to the CCJ, whether it be that the, the opposition decides that they're going to give the two votes, or I think 10 votes is the interpretation, is the requirement for the two-thirds majority, you know? So we need that sort of public education. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it needs to start because I remember back in 2009 it was when we were when we were trying to do our referendum or when we did our referendum. I know that my father and, and senior and so forth they went around and they did talks. They held talks um, in um, various communities uh, about about it. You know about the benefits of the CCJ, about the the changes because there are a lot of fairs and that's the thing. Eh? There, there's a lot of fear. Um, you know, back to the, the sensitization and the education. It is important. It's something that we need to invest more in and amp up. If we are, as Dylan said, whatever route we take, it's something that we need to increase. We need to make sure that, you know, all segments of society are fully aware and abreast of the issues and everything so that they can make an informed decision or at least know exactly what the benefits are. It'll be better off for it, you know? Uh, uh. Yeah, I agree. And ladies and gentlemen, like I mentioned before, the, the beverages are getting warm. <laughs> and I feel like this yeah. brings us to the end of our maiden episode of a lawyer and a policy analyst walking to a bar. And we thank you for listening. I'm Delano D'Souza, the policy analyst. And I'm Jadwick Cummings, the lawyer. Catch you next time. Mm-hmm.